there's a lot of people here that seem to care about environmental things and they they have historically voted with their dollars to support local ranchers and farmers and so i thought well we can we can take the momentum that traditional agriculture or more recent agriculture has made and we can we can slide in right behind that and say hey now there's a premium uh shrimp that's better for your health and it's much much lower impact uh, on the planet so we don't have a hatchery on site so the shrimp are born they're hatched in florida uh, or Texas, and they're hatched, and then about 12 days, 14 days into their rearing, they're, they they get passed through a few stress tests um, in bacteriology, and then they're sent to us in FedEx boxes. So we get about eight boxes, they're about two feet long by 16 inches high. Just, you know, one person can carry the box. Uh, we get 100,000 baby shrimp. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. We speak to people that talk about farming. And one of the obstacles is like, well, how many acres do they have? Well, today we're going to talk about farming in some respects, more about gallons than acres. And I... And Steve, I don't know if that's a fair way to get started, but but you are a farmer. We're going to talk about a special kind of farming today and not a kind we've talked about a lot before because you have shrimp. Steve Sutton, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for having me. I was going to answer your question to say that I think it's a very interesting way to start. And it's, I think, very accurate as well to say we're farming and, and thinking in terms of gallons instead of acres. Yeah, you know, and and it's a very limiting thing when you're talking about the other kind of farms. People say, well, how big's your spread? And and as you know, you've listened to some of the people on Farm to Table Talk. There are some people that do an incredible uh, job with just a couple acres, uh, homesteads and others that are producing lots and lots of food. But it still is limited to how much land they can get. In some cases, it's a substrate. They might have greenhouses and they're able to not have much land or even much soil uh, and be able to produce food. But you're producing food, and this goes back, and again, thinking in terms of of gallons. Uh, and then you're also working with a species that's pretty small to start with, too. Um, and, and we're talking about shrimp. So, Steve, there's just so many ways I'm anxious to jump into this. But why don't you describe this farm i mean if right now if you're trying to explain to somebody and say well i'm a farmer well i'm aquaponics perhaps or i'm a i'm a fish farmer but in particular a shrimp farm what is what does that even look like yeah so this this is our hopefully first of of several farms it's a proof of concept facility really but it is a commercially viable farm um you walk into a warehouse in Downey, was built in the 60, 50s and 60s, half in the 50s, half in the 60s. It's an old uh, wooden truss, kind of arched roof, uh, double roof, two roofs. Um, and yeah, Downey is in Los Angeles County. It's about 10 miles south of downtown or so. Um, yeah, you would you would walk in and you would look befuddled, as most are when they come in first. 
Um, we've got this little retail room in our offices, and then you walk in and the, the taller ceilings open up. It's about 22 foot ceiling at the highest. And you just see pumps and filters and you can hear the equipment running. Uh, and the further you walk down the farm, you'll start to see instead of fiberglass tanks that hold our filtration equipment and water that's being filtered, um, you'll see wooden tanks and those wooden frame tanks uh, were our way of getting something up and going uh, while trying to keep an eye on cost for our proof of concept. So that's where those wooden tanks are where all the shrimp live. And so much quieter, but that's that's where our, our money is made in those in those tanks down towards the end of the farm. So it's kind of a long uh, rectangular building. Yeah. Well, when you say proof of concept, it sounds like you want to get bigger so that you're proving that you can make this viable, but but you are keeping an eye on the fact that at some point in time, scaling is is going to be important to your venture. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the number one thing here is the mission, right? Which is to take pressure off of the wild environment um, by leaving it alone. So when you look at shrimp fishing, traditionally, you know, you don't have to be a biologist or I've worked on shrimp fishing boats and, and other dragging boats. Like you don't have to even have that experience. You just have to imagine, all right, so how do I get this small animal that doesn't bite a hook? How do I get it out from the bottom of the ocean onto my boat? Well, you drag a net and the longer you drag the net, the more likely you are to fill the net up. But you're also more likely to catch a whole bunch of other stuff that you didn't intend to and that, you know, the ecosystem isn't being served by you killing all of that stuff uh, and releasing the stored carbon from the bottom of the ocean. So uh, the average number that's used is about 5.7 pounds. You know, this is a third party uh, NGO calculation. About 5.7 pounds of other sea life is caught and almost all of that is killed um, and then dumped back into the ocean to catch one pound of shrimp. So five point seven. So you're you're wasting five pounds of other living critters that you're you're catching in the net, and most of them die even if they if they try to dump them back as soon as they can uh, to just get to one pound of shrimp. That, yeah. that doesn't that's, seem efficient. It doesn't seem right. Yeah, I mean that's how it's been done for a long time, and, and that number can be as little as two pounds of bycatch, what we call bycatch. And it could be as many as 20 or 30 pounds of bycatch, just depending on, you know, if there was shrimp when you dragged the net. So I I just went out for sushi the other night and had shrimp in it, and I didn't know that story. It would give me pause. You know, and in fact, at the restaurant I was at, if they had room for a story, um, and I wonder if this is going to happen, that they would say, well, Steve had this farm, had this operation, this shrimp farm, you know, and you've got your product and everything. And here's how he's doing it. And and I would suspect there's some people like me and some of the people listening right now pay attention to seeing a story like that. Yeah, I mean, I think our story right now is one of our biggest assets and our biggest successes is, is finding that there is such an audience that is hungry for something they can really believe. And I don't ask them to just trust me. I I say it's called transparency. The name of the company is called transparency uh, because that's what I felt was lacking sorely in the seafood industry. And it's like, you know, I just finished doing tours on Saturday. We had about 50 people over the course of a few hours and um, they love it. They just love to be able to make their own decision. You know, we're not trying to tell you don't buy wild, don't buy this, don't buy that. It's just, 
hey, look, this is what the wild caught method is. This is the result of it ecologically. This is the traditional farming method has cost the world 40 to 50 percent. Well, excuse me, 40 percent to 50 percent of the mangroves have been have disappeared in the world since 1980. That's just satellite imagery. You don't need to take my word for it. Um, and then it's estimated that anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of that loss, even 40 percent in some estimates, is attributed to fish and shrimp farming. So we've taken on the farming side, we already talked about wild caught fishing and its impact. Well, we didn't talk about fishing nets that get stuck in the ocean that, you know, there's millions of pounds of them in the ocean at any given time. But on the farming side, traditionally, we've just made these expansive farms that have chopped down mangrove forests, which isn't something people talk about as much as a, a tropical rainforest. But mangroves sequester twice as much or more carbon from the from the air than tropical rainforests. And they often have these, these complicated root systems. I mean, they're mostly roots. And those roots provide you know, underwater habitats for all kinds of things and above, above water habitats for birds and monkeys. And the, the fact that we're hamstringing ourselves so badly is just to me, um, you know, there's some importance to like celebrating the cultural roots of things, you know, and it, and it, it will be sad if I achieve my mission of saying, hey, like, Farming in mangroves is now obsolete. Fishing for shrimp is kind of obsolete because we've got a better tasting, cleaner, local, um, and one day hopefully cost competitive product that we can believe in and just let the mangroves become mangroves again. Because if they can be the lungs of the earth and we're sitting here, you know, you've got tech companies trying to create robots to harvest carbon dioxide out of the air. It's like, well, there's something out there that does that already and it will grow back. But we must find another way to produce that's not in these critical habitats. What are you what are you saying? Mangroves or how do you spell that? M-A-N-G-R-O-V-E-S. So I don't know what that is. It's a tree. Um, and it's the keystone species in that ecosystem. So mangrove can refer to the tree itself. There are multiple species, and it can refer to um the ecosystem. Oh, and they, there's a lot of shrimp in that in the vicinity where mangroves are? Uh, yeah. So really, to farm shrimp, you need water. And so they'll, they'll just uh, basically build a pond where they carve out the mangroves and dig it and, you know, make their ponds, however they do. And then um, when the tide comes in, you dam off the water you've collected from the tide and you can start farming shrimp. And then... When you have too much feed or if it's not going well or you need some new water, you just, you know, at high tide, you release some, uh, you collect water and at low tide, you release it. Is it mostly in Asia? It is. It's about 80%, 80 to 85% of the, the shrimp is produced in Asia. Over 90% of the shrimp we eat in this country is farmed. And uh, most of that's in Asia. The rest of it would be in Ecuador or Mexico, mostly. Really? Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and when they farm it, uh, they use the mangroves as well for the farm shrimp? And yeah, so exactly. I mean, I'll get some plaque for this, but the they want free water and free heat to grow shrimp. So the only places that are viable to do it the way it's been done traditionally are around the equator uh, and near the coast or near rivers that connect to the ocean. Mm -hmm. So that just so happens that mangroves... That's where mangroves grow all around the, the equatorial belt of the planet. You have these mangrove forests. Huh. Um, 
And, and so that it's not that they, you know, went after the mangroves. It's like that we need to clear space. And there are farms where there aren't mangroves. There are, there are definitely, you know, acres and acres of farms that are on lands that are not super productive. And so those farms might be a little bit better. Um, I think the majority of the destruction also did happen years ago. It's not like we're mowing down as many mangroves as we were, but there's also far, far less of them. <laughs> so, Steve, I mean, you're talking a, a voice of experience, it sounds like. So at, at what point in time did you decide that you needed to go find out about this? Uh, you were involved somehow in, in the industry. Were, uh, what got you into it? What was your first experience? Yeah, so... I was, uh, I, I worked on, I went to school in New York City, Columbia University. It's where I went, my undergraduate. And I kind of, I worked on Wall Street after my freshman year and decided I didn't, didn't enjoy that and wasn't really going to leave the legacy I, I think I wanted. And so I started, you know, I took a job sorting um, clams and oysters on a conveyor belt after finishing my degree. And uh, then I worked my way into NOAA, so working for the federal government. And that's where I did a lot of fishing on different uh, fishing boats and research uh, fishing boats as well. Oh, and, wait a minute. Tell, tell everybody what NOAA is. Uh, NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So right. it's okay. nestled under the Department of Commerce, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's basically like they regulate, you know, they, they produce weather reports and weather research and also regulate fisheries. So they collect data each fall and spring and try to determine based on the maturity of the animals and the number and the size, what the next year's fishing quotas should be. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I did that. And to, to complete the story, I did that and uh, did that for a year and a half. And I was really excited, you know, going to make my grandfather proud and maybe I'd be a professor of some kind. And, but I just realized like that we only eat about five to 15% of the seafood we eat is from the United States. And we have so much water compared to the number of people we have. We have so much coastline. It's, it's unreal. I think we have the most in the world for the number of, of people. And yet we produce very little of the seafood we eat. So while it's a very important thing, you know, the work that NOAA does and other, other researchers and, 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 you know, academic institutions, very important work, but I felt like it's in good hands and I need to go out into the world where the rubber meets the road of Who's who's growing the fish? Who's catching the fish? Who's buying the fish? Because that's where we need to make some serious uh, changes. And so, yeah, then I got a master's degree at University of Miami, Florida, and that um, now I'm what, 26 years old at that point, and uh, got a master's degree and traveled around South America and Southeast Asia, um, basically consulting, helping people get farms set up, and did anything from capturing fish in the ocean and figuring out how to make them mate and breed. Uh, all the way to growing the food, all the way to processing, um, you name it. Wow. And uh, and yeah, and, and throughout that journey, I was thinking, how can I bring this home? How can I have an impact and uh, also do something that I'm passionate about? So I I, I got an idea for shrimp and uh, and I went to Thailand to learn how to do it. So managed a farm there. We built a farm for a bigger company that I was in charge of kind of managing and did that for a year, uh, learned to speak some Thai in, in order to do it and really get into the environment and see like, is this really, is there a lot of pollution here? Have we lost a lot of mangroves? Like what is the, 
what we hear in the media versus the reality on the ground. So for me, it was super valuable to gain some experience with the species that I would go on to grow, but also to learn like, you know, how are the people paid? Uh, how easy is it to get antibiotics? And is this really a problem or is this an old story that we don't need to worry about so much anymore? Wow. Wow. Well, I'm going to slow down a couple of quick things. One of them, you were said how we've got so much water. We're surrounded by water, as you know. But the problem with most farms is that you can't use it because of salt. But in your case, that's not a problem, right? Right. Yeah, we need salt for most of the most of the high value species are salt water or at least brackish water. So partial salt. So is that a reason too? I mean, are you able to pull water directly from the ocean or do you have to add add the salts? Well, that's kind of the beauty of what we're doing here. I mean, it's definitely bold. It's definitely not just a, oh, well, like a normal farm, but a little different. It's very different. We make our own salt water. The idea is you can do this anywhere that you have salt. Uh, sorry, that you have water. Uh, you can have you no know, trucking to bring the feed and the salt that you need. Um, and then the key is, can you recycle? How much of that water can you recycle? And we're up to 99.5% uh, water reuse, uh, which we're really proud of. And uh, at the same time, though, our next farm will be 100% water reuse so that that salt water that we're making using that precious resource in Southern California of water stays in our farm and continues to be used to produce products. And there's no discharge. Now, when you were living in Thailand and kind of learning how to do all of this on, on a farm there, uh, were you kind of in a, in a village near the ocean? I mean, you weren't in staying in a four-star hotel in Bangkok, I gather. No, uh, they did eventually get me a nice little apartment because I was just working so much and I kind of said, I, enough's enough. But they got me a nice little, you know, one-bedroom apartment. But in the beginning, no, it was uh, it was it was rough. It was long days eating food that I had no idea what any of it was. I didn't know how to ask any questions. Um, you know, what was on the job offer when I was back in the comfort of Miami before I went there, the job offer and what I actually received were very different things in terms of amenities and translators and even a, didn't have a bank account for two months, so no paycheck. Um, but at the end of the day, it was a really useful experience just to see like, you know, Thailand led the world in shrimp farming, uh, I, I believe it was in the 2000s, maybe late 2000s, early 2010s. It's, it's a top 10 producer now. But what did that mark, like what mark did that leave on the country is what I got to see. Um, so we were in the island of Phuket. I was in the northern part of Phuket and not many shrimp farms there, but also I, I did work north of there and then across the country in another province. And really saw that there, it's just like any other farming. We've sacrificed land to produce food and hopefully it's a greater good situation i just think in the case of shrimp farming there was a lot of money to be made in the 80s 90s 2000s and still today and so it was a it was like a gold rush it was like hey in these countries or communities they're they're not sitting on all kinds of data about how much carbon dioxide is going to be sequestered by the mangroves and does it have a value they're saying, hey, I can flood this area. I can take these tree stumps out, no big deal. And I can make millions of dollars for my family. So that's kind of the situation. And basically the fears that I had from learning about shrimp farming and its history came true when I got there. So not every farm was bad. Not every farmer was bad, 
but the distribution chain is very complicated. You could go to a local market. Uh, they have these little farmers kind of stands almost, and um, you could go and, and get antibiotics right there. I mean, no problem. Just, I don't even know where I could get them today. So, so, so shrimp would be like other animals that uh, they gain better if they've got antibiotics. But then, uh, of course, then there's an issue with humans that are you know consuming, and we worry about antibiotic resistance and so forth. But I assume that's a reason. I mean, and it's in in pig feed, for example, there's antibiotics oftentimes, and and the pigs grow faster. So is it that way often with fish? That um, that and then there has to be some people that just think, well, if a little bit's good, a lot more be a lot better, or something. If if they're not tightly regulated. In my experience, it's very different. I think in my experience, uh, shrimp and fish. I mean, I've never done trials, but just talking to people, I I don't think it's worth the money to um, give them antibiotics for the reason of growth. Um, of course, if the breeders are, are kept, the breeders are very valuable, just like in any agriculture. And if they're getting antibiotics to keep them healthy and, you know, maybe grow a bit, I don't really think that's the end of the world. Um, but when it is introduced in aquaculture is most commonly when something goes wrong. So just like we share the same air, right? We share, we all share the same air. And if you put us in a combined space and one of us is ill, and you, you have no ventilation, more of us, depending on what type of illness, probably will get ill. The, the shrimp, in, in this case, share the water. So if something goes wrong, it goes wrong in a hurry. And antibiotics are often used when something has gone wrong. So most commonly, you know, the, the feed industry in aquaculture is enormous and very powerful. And so these feed companies will come to your farm and say, hey, you're doing great. Feed a little bit more. We have this special feed. And the farmers are none the wiser necessarily. And they, they okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, more feed we, we is more money, but they'll grow faster, we'll have better survival, and we'll make more money. But what happens, it's the worst thing you could do is overfeed in an aquaculture farm. Um, the bacteria levels start to spike, and then the bacteria can kind of turn on the animals and start to really make them sick. And, and you could lose entire crops uh, due to bacterial infection. So I don't think it's ever the target. I don't think it's part of the production plan. But I think when things go wrong, it's just the Band-Aid that for decades people have thrown into the pond, throw it into the feed, save the crop before we lose all our investment. Wow. That's so when they harvest them and when they get to the size that they can be harvested, um, what is that step? Uh, that gets it into, I assume, is it ends up being, do they end up being frozen and flown to the United States or what's the process? Yeah, great question. Um, convoluted answer, but here it comes. So the average piece of seafood changes hands seven to eight times before it gets to the end consumer in the United States. Um, I think it, it, it really is different. It depends on what country and what area you're in. But usually there's a farmer and then there's a buyer and then the buyer may sell to another buyer. Um, so we're still talking about a, a harvested uh, fresh product. And then probably it is either frozen and shipped to another country where labor is cheap and processing is uh, robust. And then it's thawed and processed. So it could be deheaded or deveined or both. It could be, uh, you know, usually one of those. And then it's often frozen again and either shipped to Europe or the United States, the two largest, obviously, importers. The United States is the largest importer in the world. 
Um, and other times, though, it'll have another stop where it's thawed and treated and breaded and then frozen as a breaded product. So you get these many, many changes of hands. They're not always the same. Sometimes it right. might only be four. Sometimes it might be 12. Right. Uh, usually the cheaper the product, not always, but often the cheaper the product, the more likely it's it's probably been frozen for over a year. Yeah, you know what, though? What you described is, is uh, disconcerting right there because, for example, if you're getting ground beef that's coming from meats from around the world, it's a problem if it if they thought refreeze it, thought refreeze it. You have quality issues. I'm not positive what the safety impacts are, but the the suggestion is that you can get into problems um, if you allow. And so there's a lot of regulations. Uh, and so the problem, the product that is coming in, say like meat that's coming into the United States as far as uh, beef or pork or even chicken, there's pretty strong restrictions of making sure that it hasn't been frozen and thawed uh, before it gets here. So what you're saying, there's several steps. Isn't that a potential health concern? Very, very good point. And, you know, I try to be aware of time for this podcast, but this is a long thread. And once you start pulling on it, it keeps going. So I'll, I'll be brief. But in short, you hit the nail on the head. Um, when you thaw, seafood degrades quickly, right? So these are, you know, the bacteria and enzymes that live on seafood when it's alive are because most all seafood, with the exception of maybe uh, tuna and some billfish, are cold-blooded. So those enzymes and bacteria will range in temperature. They're adapted to survive. So when you kill them, they continue to be active, much more so than terrestrial you know, beef, pork, where it's a warm-blooded thing, and they're expected to only survive at this range. When you put it in the fridge, it, it, it suppresses greatly. So you've got this material that degrades quickly. Now, every time you freeze it and thaw it, it's not an instantaneous process. Add on to that, you're moving it down a conveyor belt, how warm is the air? Every time you're doing that, the bacterial counts rising that could be on that tissue. And, yeah. and, and so how much does it rise? Well, it depends on the facility and the amount of time and the temperature. And so not only is the tissue physically breaking down from the freezing and thawing, but as you said, there are unknown types of bacteria. And, and frankly, look, I mean, you eat seafood raw at your own risk, no matter where it's from and how well it's handled because there is an inherent risk. So why are we moving it seven or eight times and just playing roulette and increasing the odds that someone could get sick? And then the last thing I'd say on it is, you know, we inspect less than less than 1% of what comes into the country is inspected because it's over 2 billion pounds per year. Just volume is just too much. Nice. So when they inspect it, they find anywhere from four to 18, 20% almost gets rejected depending on the year and the country. So a non-zero number is coming through with identified substances that are not allowed. And those could be antibiotics. They could be algicides, pesticides, uh, certain chemicals used in processing, even though a lot of them are legal. They are legal, which is bizarre mm -hmm. as well. So the Canadian government, and I'll be done here in a second. The Canadian government did a study several years ago that was well documented. You can Google it. And they found that they tested not for the presence of antibiotics, but the disease-resistant, the antibiotic-resistant bacteria, they tested for those. And they found a fairly alarming number of bacteria that have evolved to 
resist the antibiotics that have been used for decades. And they're a you know broad spectrum antibiotic. So now we're kind of almost creating, like inviting some sort of bug to come along and say, yeah, the antibiotics don't work. You've created, you've, you've helped evolve something that could be very harmful. Yeah. So it's scary. Well, that's that's really, really interesting. We're going to get back to California here pretty quick, but one more thought that occurs to me. When the product's coming in like that, this fresh product, when fresh and frozen and thawed and so forth from around the world, uh, and like you said, there's a small percentage of it that actually gets tested. But I suppose it varies from country to country. I mean, I think that it would seem to me like if you're going to an area that's pretty careful, the people that are exporting to that product there or importing it into that country, they're going to say, wait a minute, we're going to Toronto and, and, uh, they're, they're kind of, they're kind of particular, but here is this other country or this other, and they're hardly checking at all. Let's go there. Um, so, I mean, it would just, it just seemed to me that when you look at the whole world like that and you think, yeah, we haven't been that careful, but we better be careful where we ship to. Um, well, it's certainly a good point and it could happen. You know, I, I can't speak to it from experience, but it makes sense. I mean, when you know that the odds of getting inspected are really low, you know, and you know that, hey, we had an issue on day 60 on our crop. So we had to use antibiotics or we had to lose a million dollars. So we used antibiotics. Usually you wait as long as you can because the antibiotics have a health, health excuse me, half-life where they won't be detected after a certain number of days. Yeah, yeah. But well, if you're still sick, then you harvest them and you ship them and you hope for the best. Okay. Well, you convinced me now. I don't know how many of our listeners are convinced, but I'm, I'm thinking I need to see more here in back, back in the States or back where we're growing. And you're talking about an alternative that is very appealing to me. So let's go back now to you, where you started. So you've got these tanks. You could put anything in them. I mean, you could you could do some other kind of fish farming, I suppose. And and uh, so, what took you to shrimp um, rather than something bigger? Well, I think I really believe that you know resources are not only the things we think of when we think about eco friendliness. So you know, salt, water, land, trees, mangroves. In this case, those are all resources, of course. But money is also a resource. So a sustainable business to me, you know, of course, there's testing that needs to be done. You have to experiment and and you often do that at a loss. Right. But to me, like money is also a resource. And uh, our industry hasn't always handled money very well. There have been a lot of businesses that have gone under and that happens. But I was dedicated to saying, like, let's make a a financially viable business. And so shrimp is the most consumed seafood in the United States. It is ecologically, as we discussed, one of the biggest offenders in terms of wild caught or farm shrimp have very large environmental footprints. So I said, well, it's a huge market opportunity. It's pretty bad the way it's being done on average, right? General. Um, I think it's something that I, if I'm going to be successful in this field, like this is probably my best shot. And then I moved to Southern California, because I thought there's a lot of people here that, you know, kind of seem to care about environmental things. And they, they have historically voted with their dollars to support local ranchers and farmers. And so I thought, well, we can, we can take the momentum that traditional agriculture or more recent agriculture has made. And we can, we can slide in right behind that and say, Hey, now there's a premium uh, shrimp that's better for your health. 
and it's much, much lower impact uh, on the planet. And it's just beginning, you know, it's just something that like we're just starting. So the price will come down, the efficiency, the power use will go down. Um, and that, that, that's really the story. That's kind of how I can. Yeah. Well, so you got you got equipment, you got the tank, you've got the water, you've got the salt, you've got the machine, you've got the experience. So where do you get the shrimp to get started? Really good question. Yeah, this has been one of our Achilles heels. But, you know, I decided that this was risky enough to try to start a shrimp farm in a pandemic in a warehouse in an area with no agricultural zoning. <laughs> I thought it was enough to try to just master the hardest part, which is growing them from a young age where they need very little space to the harvestable size. And so we don't have a hatchery on site. So the shrimp are born, they're hatched in Florida uh, or Texas, depending where we're, who we're working with. There are only a few hatcheries in the United States and they're hatched. And then about 12 days, 14 days into their rearing, they're, they, they get passed through a few stress tests um, in bacteriology, and then they're sent to us in FedEx boxes. So we get about eight boxes. They're about two feet long by 16 inches high. Just, you know, one person can carry the box. Uh, we get 100,000 baby shrimp uh, that are about 15 days old, and that's every two or three weeks. And it's water. I mean, there's water in these boxes. Yep. So it's plastic line, cardboard boxes, FedEx with a hundred thousand shrimp in a two foot by two foot box. Yep. And even then we, we use the box, the box will have a cardboard styrofoam and plastic bag. We reuse all of those. And so those become our delivery totes. Um, so it works out. We get as much reuse as we can. And it's a pretty small carbon footprint in the big picture. Oh, uh, that being said, it's not a sustainable model long-term. So, so, so you get this, you put them in the tank, you add the water. So what, is, what do you feed them? Uh, when they're young, they get a little different feed, but similar, uh, higher protein. We really keep a close eye on them. Uh, the feed is comprised primarily of fish meal and fish oil. And so that is uh, usually almost all. I mean, it's in, about half of it's used in pet feeds. Um, the, the fish that are caught out in the ocean for this fish meal are what's called a forage fish. So they're a pelagic, like ocean-dwelling fish, not usually on the bottom, but somewhere on the surface or the middle of the water. And they'll be like a herring or a mackerel or a menhaden. So a small oily fish that regenerates fairly quickly, depending on, you know, oceanographic conditions. Um, that's, that's then taken and caught ground up uh, and made into a commodity. And that's uh, the powder is fish meal and the oil that they press out is fish oil. So those are just poured in the tanks then? No, no, no. It's then, uh, so we have a feed partner who makes our feed and the feed is a whole science and industry onto its own because what we're trying to do is not just take pure fish, you know, rob Peter in the ocean to pay right. Paul, who happens to be our own personal enterprise. You know, yeah. that, that gets a lot of criticism and, and somewhat rightly so, sure. but the catch, the catch is the efficiency. So we take that fish from the ocean, which is a low bycatch type of fishing. Um, but we want to make that obsolete too. But for now, we bring it on land. We make the feed for these omnivores. So it is only a percentage of it is fish meal and fish oil. Mm -hmm. There are other um, plant-based starches um, and, and other uh, carbohydrates and some proteins. There's a vitamin and mineral premix that's just, you know, explicitly for shrimp. It's been studied for decades. 
Um, yeah, so it's it's a pelleted feed, like you would feed chickens or anything else, and it's just like chicken feed. I mean, it is just for for shrimp and each life stage as they get older, we try to use less protein and minimize our footprint. But I think the last thing I'll say is feed is, is, is a really good point right now, but I think we can do a lot better and we will do a lot better in terms of where do we get that fish meal and, and how low can we reduce that fish meal without compromising the health of the animals or the flavor. So you're starting with this fraction of an inch shrimp. I mean, really, 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 really tiny. And then when they're ready for, for market, what are, are they, uh, three inches long or, or, or uh, about five to seven inches long. Okay. Okay. Five. So they're good, fairly good size then. And how long does it take to get them from the time you get them from the hatchery until you're ready to harvest them? All total, total, it'll be three to three and a half months on the farm. So. Their whole lifespan would be about four months. So you can do three turns in a tank or four a year? Yeah, between three and four. Yeah. So um, and so you get them. So how is how are they processed? What more do you do to them before they can be sold either to uh, retail or to or to restaurants or institutions? So for us, we're you know, we're small enough in a big enough market that we sell directly to restaurants whole prawns. Technically, these are prawns, by the way. Um, but the market is so confused about shrimp versus prawns. Um, so we sell whole, we don't do any processing. We're not licensed to process. Um, and we're trying to convince people that there's value in the whole, in the whole prawn. So, I mean, the head is really the body and the body has all the, the fatty organs in it. And as you know, with land-based proteins, for the most part, you know, your beef, even your fish, you know, the marbling pork as well, the marbling is what you know, drives the the price and the flavor and the perceived quality. Um, it's not the case in shrimp. The tail of the shrimp, that's pretty much what we eat, is just the muscle. Uh, the flavor really is mostly in the head and the omega-3 fatty acids that the doctor says you should eat more seafood. A lot of that's concentrated in the head as well. So when we take the head and throw it away, we're losing a flavor nugget that also has a lot of benefits for our health. So we're trying to convince people that, look, when it's farmed in, in waters unknown, in, in methods unknown, and you can't trace it, probably best not to eat the head. Because the other thing about fat is that bad stuff is typically fat soluble, heavy metals, pesticides, etc. So you're better off if you don't know what's in it to not to lose the head. In our case, we're saying, look, we're, we're using drinking water, we clean it, then we filter it 16 to 20 times per day. And we grow these animals for three months. We feed them a, a very well-respected feed and that's about it. So there's no reason to be throwing the head in the trench. So we sell whole, deliver mostly to restaurants, but we're just opening up a little bit of retail. So, you you know, you can pre-order and pick it up at the farm. Uh, you can pick it up at a couple of our restaurant partners. So we're just kind of slowly stepping into that world. Well, what's a typical uh, entrees that we might go to a restaurant that's using your prawns? How are they... Uh, what are some of the the better presentations of it that you you see? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so usually you know grilled uh, has been very successful. People, chefs, I mean, have really taught me a lot. I I'm a culinary brute, and I'm in one of the best places in in the world to learn about it. Um, seems wood fired uh, wood fired grills as hot as they can get them. They'll sometimes serve the entire prawn, so they'll season it, and that's it. Um, but often I'm seeing a head on, they'll take the tail and they'll peel most of the tail 
and just make it easier to eat. Some of them will devein, some of them don't devein. Uh, we have Michelin star restaurants that have not deveined our shrimp, which to some consumers may make you think, well, I'm paying a lot of money for this restaurant and this dinner, and this is this is lazy of them. But the reality is when the prawns are eating a healthy feed in our system, and we fast them the night before harvest, so we don't feed them the night before harvest, the vein, which is the digestive tract, of course, is empty. So we're not having animals that are eating, you know, their own feces over and over or sitting in the bottom of a muddy pond or a muddy estuary eating a rotten fish carcass, because that should probably be deveined. You should remove that so you don't get any grit, sand, or potentially, you know, rotting flesh in your diet. But in our case, it, it's controlled, it's clean, and uh, it's optional. So whole prawns, we're seeing a lot of grilled. We are seeing in the summertime, people are doing some ceviches, some crudos, some raw dishes as well, which again, is, is an eyebrow raiser for people to think, I'm not going to go to the grocery store, buy shrimp and thaw it and eat it raw. Um, and neither would I. But when they're raised the way we do it, we have some sterilization components in our system. So every time that water goes around, there's a level of sterilization that keeps the bacterial count low. Um, doesn't mean it's 100% safe and everyone should go eat raw shrimp, even if it's ours. There is always a risk of eating raw seafood. Well, but, this is, yeah, this is fascinating. I, I'm re really appreciate learning, and I'm sure many of our listeners are as well too. So, Steve, a couple quick things. Uh, one is how can people keep track of your company, your program, what you're doing? Yeah, so we're pretty small still, but we've got our website is pretty capable. Um, so, if you're in the Los Angeles area or Orange County or Southern California. We'll find a way to get it to you. So um, we are kind of product limited these days, which is good. But the company's website is transparencyfarm.com. Um, we have a pretty active Instagram. A lot of stuff, you know, posted on there for fun and education. The Instagram is transparencyfarm as well. Um, but yeah. Now, wait a minute. Now, wait, you're not spelling it like transparency with an Y. It's transparent and then C-S-E-A? Correct. Yeah, better clarify that. If you could. Yeah, I forgot. This is an audio recording. Right? That's that's right. Transparent C. So transparent, full word with the T, and then S E A like the ocean, and F A R M like old McDonald had a farm. So how long is it going to be before if I'm if I'm in Minnesota or Connecticut or somewhere and I want to get some of your shrimp and I want them just shipped to me? Is that going to happen? Uh, that's a good question. You know, personally. I feel that uh, all the effort we're making in the 20 years of research to get this to where it is would be a shame to give back too much of our carbon footprint that we're saving by by shipping air freight. So we do a little bit just to kind of test it out. But I think really what we believe in is regional farms. So, you know, you could put this in Canada. You could put this. It, it, it's going to cost you less to heat the building, but uh, it can be almost anywhere. And we want to demonstrate that at our next farm. So we want to build a farm that's 10 times or so the size, probably somewhere between LA and San Francisco as farms are, and, um, really become, you know, confident in how, how, can, how much can we slash off of our costs to produce? Um, we're also going to be building a lot more media so you can follow along on our website or Instagram, but we're going to put a significant effort into media because I think that's the way the world learns today. And really, yeah, I think we're going to do probably ground freight. We'll have much more extensive ground freight. So if we have a Southern California farm, you can get it as far as Phoenix, Arizona, 
um, or, you know, Portland, Oregon with a minimal impact. And that's what we want to do. We're realistic. You do have to ship your product in order to succeed and, and to, to reach customers that care. But I don't think to tomorrow or next year we'll be shipping much to the East Coast. Look down the road. I mean, if you're going to say like five years from now, what do you hope the situation is? How, what's the future going to look like that you're trying to help form right now? Yeah, appreciate that question. Um, what I hope to see is that personally, as a company, we'd be on our third farm and hopefully be um, helping others that are serious about commercial, commercially growing shrimp. Hopefully we're helping others in a joint venture fashion because this is a huge problem. It, it, it's a problem on a huge scale, let's say that. And there's various reasons why it's not ideal for our health or for the planet. So I think you got to tackle that problem as quickly as you can and scale it kind of as quickly as you can. The big question is how affordably can we produce it? Because you know, traditionally, there's been slave labor involved in shrimp farming in Asia. Still to this day, there are cases reported, um, you know, very low pay, indentured servitude. There, It's just a bottom of the barrel, race to the bottom cost to produce. We may not be able to beat that. And that's not something every investor wants to hear. But there is a premium market here that's substantial and unknown. And I think just like grass-fed beef kind of, you know, used to be a lot of beef, beef with grass-fed. I mean, they, they, they eat grass. But it kind of came roaring back, and we're hoping that we can chip away, even become five percent of the market share. If we did that, I mean, I think we would say we'd be able to say we're we're achieving our mission, and uh, people can vote with their dollars and let us know, hey, we really like this for an extra two dollars a pound. We believe in it, and this is the only thing I'm feeding my family. The more people we can connect with, educate, and give them the opportunity to buy it at a competitive price, which is not not so competitive today, but the next farm. Then who knows, Roger? I mean, maybe maybe we could be 10% of the global supply. It could be indoor, locally raised, uh, low impact, no discharge, farmed uh, product. Well, and maybe we're going to have some farms sprinkled across the Midwest and, you know, into Canada and uh, all over with the model that you're creating. Thanks for sharing this story with us today. And I've been talking to Steve Sutton of Transparent Sea. And uh, Steve, best of luck. Thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thanks so much, Roger. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 